Welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is episode number 118, Jefferson's Dream. The opening and outro music for this episode is from Come Rest in This Bosom, said to be Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song. I'd like to begin this episode with a brief section from a letter that the aging Thomas Jefferson wrote to his old friend John Adams on October the 12th, 1823. Crippled wrists and and fingers make writing slow and laborious, but while writing to you, I lose the sense of these and the recollections of ancient times when youth made health and happiness out of everything. I forget for a while this this hoary winter of age, when we can think of nothing but how to keep ourselves warm by the fire and how to get rid of our heavy penalties until the friendly hand of death shall rid us of it all at once. Against this tedium, however, my dear friend, I now fortunately mounted on a hobby, which, indeed, I mounted some thirty or forty years ago, but whose amble is still sufficient to give exercise and amusement to an octogenarian writer. This is the establishment of a university for the education of all succeeding generations of youth in this republic. Today's Celebrate Poe begins a look at the establishment of the University of Virginia and Edgar Allan Poe's months as a student there during its second year of operation. I say months because Poe began his time at the university on February the 14th, 1826 and left on December the 15th of the same year. And after a bit about Mr. Jefferson, this episode will speak with the ghost of Mr. Poe. To really understand the University of Virginia, you have to look at its founder, Thomas Jefferson, and his educational philosophy. To understand Jefferson, the man and politician, there is a great podcast out there called The Thomas Jefferson Hour, where humanities scholar and author Clay Jenkinson portrays Thomas Jefferson. The podcast features Mr. Jefferson's views on events of his time, contemporary issues facing America, and answers to questions submitted by listeners. Clay Jenkinson does a great job as a historical reenactor of Mr. Jefferson, and I just sit in awe of his command of Mr. Jefferson's words and thoughts. Clay Jenkinson really knows his subject. A shorter way to learn about Jefferson, and by shorter, I mean just a few hours as compared to the nearly 1,500 hours online of the Thomas Jefferson hours so far, is a free course at the University of Virginia called The Age of Jefferson. This is a free online course. Again, free, unless you want a certificate. The course is taught by Professor Peter S. Onuf, author and professor at the University of Virginia. The course is definitely well worth your time, and I've put the titles and a link to Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A, on the show notes and the transcript for this episode at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. 
Now, a word about that course, just go to Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A dot org, type Jefferson in the search box at the top of the page, and there you can enroll in the course, The Age of Jefferson. I think a great way of uh, setting the basis for uh, the portion of this podcast dealing with Edgar Poe's attending the University of Virginia is to go over the basics of that class. This episode will briefly, and let me emphasize very briefly, go over the six parts of The Age of Jefferson. I really believe that spending a few minutes going over Thomas Jefferson and his ideals will really make the complexities of Edgar Allan Poe's experience at the University of Virginia much clearer. So I'll be using some of the descriptive material here from Dr. Onuf's class. First, Thomas Jefferson uh, has uh, been one of the most polarizing and controversial figures in American history. Jefferson's reputation has certainly changed and evolved over the last two centuries. Many people in both the 19th and 20th centuries, and of course the 21st centuries, have viewed Jefferson and his ideas with skepticism or worse, while others have embraced Jefferson. No matter how you feel about Jefferson, the man and his ideals cannot be ignored. Second, probably the first thing you think about when someone mentions Thomas Jefferson is the fact that he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Listing it as the first of three achievements on his tombstone, Jefferson clearly believed the Declaration to be of profound importance. Third, Thomas Jefferson and his attitude towards religion in society continues to be a topic of debate today in both the United States and around the world. Thomas Jefferson was never happier than when his bill for religious freedom was finally enacted in Virginia in 1786. Fourth, the idea that the earth belongs to the living. In 1789, Jefferson wrote a letter to James Madison from Paris in which he asserted that the earth belongs to the living, an idea which has a special significance today. Calculating that a single generation could be said to last 19 years, I guess because life expectancy then was a great deal lower, Mr. Jefferson proposed that no debts should be incurred that could not be paid off in 19 years, that all laws should be rewritten every 19 years, and that Americans should rewrite even their constitutions every 19 years. Madison thought that the ideas that Jefferson outlined in this letter were wildly impractical, and most commentators since then have come to the same conclusion. And finally, education was one of Jefferson's constant preoccupations. The founding of the University of Virginia in 1819 was certainly not the first time he had considered the importance of the subject, but has come to us as the most obvious example of his interest in education. But the founding of the university was certainly not easy. Some of the strongest criticism proceeded from William and Mary College, his own alma mater, which, to be honest, was in a rather swampy area 
and their surroundings were not the most healthy. However, most of the criticism arose from the nature of Jefferson's educational ideals. He was well acquainted with the methods of English and continental universities, and uh, Jefferson endeavored to build a type of university that was brand new to American education. You see, in 1818, when he sent his proposals to the legislature of Virginia, the vast majority of colleges in the United States were still largely under denominational influence. Jefferson's proposal that the University of Virginia be completely non-sectarian was a red flag to the conservative Church of England and the Presbyterian elements of the state. But since the very essence of Jefferson's ideal was freedom, from the choice of professors to the selection by the students of their courses of study, Jefferson persisted and won, ultimately, his fight. He chose for the site of his university, Charlottesville, lying in the valley between the Southwest Mountains on one side and the Blue Ridge on the other. Toward the south, the ragged mountains rose, and on the north, the land rolled away as far as the eye could reach. Edgar Allan Poe later wrote a story set specifically in the ragged mountains and could have been thinking about the view from one of the nearby mountains when in Tamerlane he wrote, On the crown of a high mountain which looked down afar from its proud natural towers of rock and forest, on the hills, the dwindled hills, begirt with bowers. The cornerstone for one of the pavilions of the college, the modern Colonnade Club, was laid in 1817. Jefferson certainly had the advice of practical architects, but the main conception was his. To him is due the lofty rotunda, modeled on the Parthenon at Rome, and looking down on the west and east ranges, each with its mingled Ionic, Doric, and Corinthian pavilions. It still remains one of the most impressive examples of classical architecture on any American college campus, and to a lover of beauty like Poe, it must have been an inspiration. When the university was being built, Jefferson had been selecting the faculty. Now, this may get a bit dry, but it's really kind of interesting uh, when we get into the courses that Poe took. Jefferson sought, both by correspondence and by sending an emissary to England, Francis W. Gilmer, to secure the foremost men available. The first faculty certainly contained a number of fine scholars. George Long, who lived from 1800 to 1879, a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, although he was young when he accepted the chair of ancient languages, established standards of scholarship during his brief stay from 1825 to 1828. And the reason they're so important is they've become a tradition at the University of Virginia. Receiving a call to the University of London, he returned to his native country. In his senior class, which Poe attended, he required during each period 100 lines from a Roman poet such as Virgil to be read, followed by translations from Horace or some other author in Greek or Latin. In 
At times, he varied this program by writing tests in Greek or Latin grammar. The grammatical, the grammatical constructions were illustrated by copious references to classical authors, and the class was instructed to follow up each reference and become familiar with the general texts of the author's use. Gessner Harrison, Long's foremost pupil and his successor in the chair of ancient languages, has testified to the close attention and hard labor that was necessary. Long seems to have taught Latin and Greek with an understanding of history. It is said that Long was able to teach languages and geography in a style that made them come alive. So Poe was exposed to some really heavy stuff. Now, the next person of note I'd like to talk about is George Blaterman. That's B-L-A-E-T-T-E-R-M-A-N-N. He was the professor of modern languages and was a native of Germany, but living in London when, on the recommendation of George Tickner of Harvard, he was appointed to the chair. He was a rather irrational person. Uh, Very strange. He went so far as to cowhide his wife one time on the street. And he was dismissed in 1838 at the request of the undergraduate body. But he seems to have been a more than competent linguist. Poe, according to the testimony of William Wurtenbacher, took French, Spanish, and Italian. On one occasion, Professor Blaterman gave as a voluntary exercise a verse translation from Tasso. Again, this is really heavy stuff. Poe was the only student who responded, and his verse was highly praised by the none-too-genial teacher. That Poe was more interested in his language, modern language study, than in his work in ancient languages may be indicated by the fact that his library cards were signed by Blaterman, although, of course, this may have been accidental. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. The reputation of the university spread rapidly. Among Jefferson's loyal supporters in the enterprise was General H. Cock, a public-spirited citizen. General Cock was a friend of John Allen, and it seemed probable that Edgar was sent to the university at his suggestion. So now, a young freshman by the name of Edgar Allan Poe enters the picture, although at the time it might not have seemed that big a deal, but he enters the picture in its second year of operation, the school's second year of operation on Valentine's Day, February the 14th, 1826. Now, let me take just a second here to say that uh, it may have been possible that young Edgar had already met and fallen in love with Elmira Royster of Richmond. We just don't know the exact date. But if he did, then leaving who he felt was his true love certainly wasn't easy, and entering school on Valentine's Day might have made it all the more cruel-seeming. But this podcast will deal with Elmira Shelton a great deal more in future episodes.
Greetings, Mr. Bartley. Now, have you finished talking about the beginnings of the University of Virginia? Basically, you know, you, you always seem to know when to arrive, Mr. Poe. Being a supernatural being gives one that ability. You know, it might be interesting to know some of the ways that you obtained education before you entered the University of Virginia. Certainly, though, although I, I do believe uh, we have touched on this information before. But there were the schools abroad in Scotland, and especially the five years of classical education at Stoke Newington near London. In addition to regular schooling in Richmond, Virginia, I also experienced what you might today call informal networking by socializing with the various guests of John and Francis Allen and other prominent and well-esteemed individuals to which the city of Richmond owes so much of her name and character. So I guess it would be natural that John Allen would have wanted his son to attend a prestigious center of learning. Even by carriage, it would only require a day or two to travel the approximately 60 miles from the Allen home in Richmond to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Ah, yes, but I discovered later, much later, that according to writer Arthur Hobson Quinn in Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography, the first session was quite, uh, uh, shall we say, stormy. And you can't get much more reliable than Arthur Hobson Quinn. I do quite agree. Anyway, the professors, who were mainly English, seemed to have been unpopular because of that fact and were the victims of uh, what you would call unpardonable disrespect. The faculty meetings in the first session were largely given up to disciplining students guilty of the use of ardent and venous liquors or of gambling. There were open outbreaks as well as personal rebellion against rules. The university seemed in imminent peril from within because of the unrestrained wildness, rampant disrespect, and the obstreperous conduct of a body of immature young men who mistook this new liberty for license. In other words, students who were away from home and thought that meant they could do anything they wanted. Now, did the university situation change for the second year of operation? Somewhat, but, but not entirely. You see, the second session began on February the 1st, 1826. On that day, 34 students matriculated. And then after that, they came in day by day until by Tuesday, February the 14th, 131 students had matriculated. On the 14th, five students entered, among them me. I was number 136 out of a total enrollment for the session of 177 students. So you just made it. Let me summarize and add some relevant comments. 
I was 136th on the list of 177 who attended during that school year. Of the 177, six withdrew, three were suspended, three were dismissed, and three were expelled during the year. I paid my fees of $60 for attendance on two professors, George Long, School of Ancient Languages, Greek and Latin, and George Bladerman, School of Modern Languages, French, German, Italian, and Spanish. My class schedule was Ancient Languages, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 7.30 to 9.30, and Modern Languages, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, 7.30 to 9.30. Of course, both were in the a.m. I can't even imagine having to be at class at 7.30 in the morning. Nevertheless, I knew I was going to have financial problems, and I later wrote John Allen regarding the necessary expenses for the university that details my most embarrassing plight. I wrote, The experiences of the institution at the lowest estimate were $350 per annum. You sent me there with $110. Of this, $50 were to be paid immediately for board, $60 for attendance upon two professors, and even then you did not miss the opportunity of abusing me because I did not attend three. Then $15 more were to be paid for room rent. Now remember that all this was to be paid in advance with $110, 12 more for a bed, and $12 more for room furniture. I had, of course, the mortification of running in debt for public property against the known rules of the institution and was immediately regarded in the light of a beggar. You will remember that in a week after my arrival, I wrote to you for some more money and for books. You replied in terms of the utmost most abuse. If I had been the vilest wretch on earth, you could not have been more abusive than you were. You certainly had a right to be concerned, but let's concentrate on your actual life at the university. Ah, according to a college mate and warm personal friend, Thomas Good Tucker, I roomed at first on the lawn with Miles George of Richmond. Do we know the location of that room? Unfortunately, there is no evidence of any kind remaining that shows the location of this lawn room. Well, could you tell us about uh, this roommate, Mr. Miles George? Yes, uh, this Miles George, born September the 17th, eight. 1807 was the son of Bird, B-I-R-D, George of Richmond, Virginia, matriculated on February the 3rd, 1826, entering the classes of Professors Long and Key, and remained at the university two sessions. While he does not seem to have been engaged in any disturbances or guilty of any misdemeanors, he afterward graduated from the Medical College of Pennsylvania. 
So I guess it could be said that uh, you and this Miles George got along fairly well. For the most part, but early in the session, Miles George and I did have some difficulty. The cause of this youthful disagreement is, is unknown and in all probability was not at all serious. The result, however, of the discord was a fistcuff in a field near the university, after which the participants shook hands and parted in peace. Miles George remained in possession of the lawn room, and I moved to the West Range. Now, at this point, how old would you have been? I was just past 17, but it must be pointed out that my athletic record was already well established. Some might say I was rather short of statue, thick and somewhat compactly set, but very active, being quite an expert in athletic and gymnastic arts. It may spoil a poetic illusion to add that I was a bit bow-legged and walked rapidly with a certain jerkiness in my hurried, my most hurried movements. Let me, though, emphasize that my greatest athletic achievement dates from June 1825, when I swam under a hot sun from Ludlands Wharf in Richmond to Warwick, a distance of six miles against a very strong tide. This feat on the James, which is duly attested, was indeed remarkable for a boy and in a measure justifies my later boast that I could swim the English Channel from Dover to Calais. But my prowess was not confined to swimming. I had the reputation of being the best young boxer in Richmond. And if in fights I ever had to exercise the valorous discretion of flight, I could readily have outstripped most contestants. The reason is obvious. My swiftness in running was noted among my companions. My athletic record in field sports, however, would have been made in the running broad jump. Yes, Mr. Poe, you, you certainly are proud of your athletic accomplishments. But I'm afraid we're beginning to wander too far from the experiences of your session at the University of Virginia. I'd like to talk more about your room on the West Range and life at the university. Ah, yes. I, I used to entertain myself and my friends by writing on a bit of paper of fixed size the largest possible number of words. I also greatly enjoy drawing crayon sketches on my walls. Some of my friends have remarked that sometimes when I was taking part in conversation, I would also write verse. This was a process where I trained myself to listen and think of something else at the same time. The rhyming, when it is pronounced creditable, was, after all, but a sign of my developing skills in versification, which were also shown in my translation from the Italian. Ah, yes, I would assume such skills would prove helpful in your writing. Yes, this did prove to be true. Later, I did join the Jefferson Literary Society at the university and became its secretary. 
In fact, once I read one of my stories to an audience of my friends. I thought the story was, was of some merit, but a friend who, in a spirit of jest, spoke most lightly of its merits. He jokingly told me that my hero's name, Gaffey, G-A-F-F-Y, occurred too often. My proud spirit considered such remarks to be open rebuke, so in a fit of anger before my friends could prevent me, I had flung every sheet into a blazing fire, and thus was lost a story of more than ordinary parts. Unlike most of my stories, this piece of literature was intensely amusing, entirely free from my usual somber coloring and sad conclusions that might merge into a mist of impenetrable gloom. I was for a very long time afterwards called by those in this particular circle, Kathy Poe. You may surmise that this was a name that I never altogether relished. I can only surmise... Well, you've got me talking like you, Mr. Poe. Uh, I can only guess that the world was robbed of a story by one of its greatest writers. That situation reminds me of a brief scene from the movie Shakespeare in Love, where the character of Shakespeare is upset and throws away a play that he doesn't like. On the commentary to the movie, the observation is made that such an action would be a tragedy to Shakespearean scholars. Such a similar action from Mr. Poe would be a similar tragedy for Poe scholars. But, uh, Mr. Poe, would you conclude this episode by reading the observation that I have here? These words were made by Mr. Miles George regarding your experience and personality at the university. Certainly. Poe, as it has been said, was fond of quoting poetic authors and reading poetic productions of his own, with which his friends were delighted and entertained. Then suddenly a change would come over him, and he would, with a piece of charcoal, evince his versatile genius by sketching upon the walls of his dormitory whimsical, fanciful, and grotesque figures with so much artistic skill as to leave us in doubt whether Poe in future life would be painter or poet. He was very excitable and restless, at times wayward, melancholic and morose, but again in his better moods frolicsome, full of fun, and a most attractive and agreeable companion. Mr. Bartley, on that most agreeable note, I must take my leave. Join us for our next few episodes as Celebrate Poe continues an examination of the period when Edgar Poe attended the University of Virginia. The next episode will cover Poe's problems with alcohol at the university and some comments on how his addiction has been greatly exaggerated. Sources for this episode include The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe by Edgar Allan Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by author Hobson Quinn, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips, Life of Edgar A. Poe by Eugene L. Didier, 
The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight Thomas and David K. Jackson. Poe and Place by Philip Edward Phillips and New Glimpses of Poe by James A. Harrison. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.